morning. My name's Dan and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Uh, I'm sorry I'm not able to be with you in person this morning, but I have a little bit of a cold and I think that the good and the right and the nice thing to do in this season is to uh, stay at home. So that's what's happening and that's why uh, you're watching me on the big screen uh, instead of in person. So, um, you know, but I wish I was there with you and, uh, you know, I, I always look forward to our Sundays together. So if, if this is, uh, so if you're joining us in person or if you're joining us online, um, I truly hope that you are experiencing uh, God's presence and his blessing and that uh, he will speak to you through this message. So I have a question for you. Do you ever wonder who does the dental work for the dentist when the dentist needs to have dental work done? Or who cuts the hair of a hairdresser? Or who does surgery on a surgeon when a surgeon needs to have surgery done? I, I, um, I, I've actually found myself w wondering this. I mean, um, can you imagine the dentist doing their own work? Um, they'd have to set the mirrors up and then they have the pick thing and the tongue depressor and they're rooting around in their mouths and they're looking up at the mirror and of course in the mirror everything's reversed so they're, you know, it's, it's extra complicated. Uh, and then they're trying to tell the dental assistant uh, the code numbers that um, only those in the dental world, world know what they mean. Uh, but the but the assistant can't understand because the dentist has their own tools in their mouth and their own hands in their mouth and there's spit in their mouthwash everywhere. It's messy and it's complicated. And then they pick up the drill. Even the best dentist cannot do their own dental work. Even the world's leading surgeon cannot do their own surgery. They need someone else to do it. Hold on to that thought. Now, if I was to ask you, who is the world's most famous baptizer? I wonder who you would say. Probably John the Baptist, right? But John says this in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. He says, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What John's saying here is, yeah, you know, I am a baptizer, but Jesus, when he comes, he's going to baptize. He's going um, he's gonna to really amp it up a notch, or three or four. This here is John's Yelp review of, of Jesus. The guy whose job it is to baptize is telling everyone who will listen that Jesus is the best baptizer there is because he will he will he will baptize not with water but with the holy spirit and with fire this is baptism on steroids and of course this prophecy is fulfilled in acts chapter 2 when the day of pentecost came they were all together in one place suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. The Holy Spirit and fire. So John here is giving props to Jesus as the best in his field. If Jesus was a doctor, then he would be like the Surgeon General, top, top, top. 
But sometimes even the Surgeon General needs to have an operation. And in Luke chapter 3, Jesus needs to be baptised. And even though Jesus is the best, he cannot baptise himself. You know, he can't say, I baptise me in the name of the Father and of me and of the Holy Spirit, right? That, that just wouldn't work. And so Jesus comes to John and he says, I need you to baptise me. And I would imagine that John, when he gets that request, is like, okay, Lord, but if there's anyone who doesn't need to be, be baptised, I would assume it was you. Why are you asking me to baptise you? And that really is the question here. Why did Jesus need to be baptised? Let's find out why. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. This is our scripture for this morning. Um, when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This Sunday um, in the lectionary is known as the baptism of the Lord. And it's part of the epiphany season, the unveiling of Jesus. Last week, Jesus revealed himself as the one who makes outsiders into insiders. And this week, there's another revelation about who Jesus is. Uh, one more unveiling. And here Jesus unveils himself as someone who surprisingly needs to be baptized. Now, Jesus should not be being baptized. He's the only one who doesn't have to be baptized, right? Why? Because you don't clean clean stuff. You only need to clean stuff which is dirty. And if you clean clean stuff, then people start to wonder if maybe you're a little bit OCD. And Jesus, he's the spotless one, right? He's clean. He's sinless. And Luke chapter 3 verse 3 says to us, that John's, John, was, John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And interestingly, this is the baptism that Jesus asked for and the baptism that he received. The same as everyone else, the same as all of the sinners. Why is that? Here's the question, still unanswered. Why did Jesus get baptised? Well, last week I said that uh, Jesus makes outsiders from insiders Sorry, Jesus makes insiders from outsiders. And here we start to see that the only way that he can do that is to make himself, who is the ultimate insider, into an outsider. In other words, in his baptism, Jesus identifies with you and with me, with us. He throws his lot in with us. He's not a sinner, but he, he identifies with us as sinners. Listen to these words. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. Right? He's throwing his lot in with us. Robert Weber explains it like this. He said, Jesus was baptised for the sins of the people for whom he was going to die. So, Jesus got baptised so that he could identify with us as sinners. But there was another reason that Jesus got baptised, and that was so that we could identify him as God, as a Trinitarian God. He identifies with us as sinners, and we identify with him as one of the Trinity, the Godhead, the spiritual community of one God and three persons. Verse 21, And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him 
in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven which was the father's voice so we have the spirit there and we have the father saying you are my son whom i love with you i am well please here in these in these verses we see each mem- member of the trinity um spoken about and this is an incredibly precious moment where we see you know the fullness of god's head um at work the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in one place at one time. So at the Jordan River, Jesus identifies with us as sinners and we, we identify Jesus to see that he is one of the members of the Trinity. Now, I can't imagine being there. You know, uh, for all of the people around, they would, they would have assumed that when Jesus got into the water asking to be baptized, that he was just another run-of-the-mill, you know, Joe Bloggs type that he was a sinner like them because no one really knew who he was yet. He hadn't kind of outed himself as the Messiah. He, his ministry hadn't started yet. But then this, this random guy, what was his name again? Oh yeah, Jesus. He prays and suddenly it's like this scene from a sci-fi movie. Verse number 21 says that heaven was opened. Now, what does heaven opened actually mean? I don't know, but my first, my first thought in my mind is kind of clouds which part and a sunbeam that shines down. But that's not what this means, because if that was the case, then the people there would have thought, oh, the clouds are parting and the sun is shining through. Isn't that lovely? But this is something else. This is not just the parting of the clouds. This is more like a Ridley Scott movie. In fact, Mark, in his account, puts even more oomph to it. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Luke, you see, uses the the more sedate word anoego to to describe heaven being opened. But Mark, he uses this word schizo. Schizo, which is where we get the word schizophrenia from. And, uh, and so, so Luke's, Luke's kind of going for more of a, an open and shut, you know, um, like a door gets open and shut or a mouth is open and shut or eyes are open and shut, right? But uh, Mark's sense is something else. He says heaven gets, gets torn open. This is violent language. Now, I still don't have any idea what schizo looks like. What does it look like for the heavens to be torn open? But regardless of what it means, it's a powerful image. And so in this unique moment where Jesus identifies with us as sinners and we we identify Jesus as part of the Godhead, the heavens are torn open. And this word schizo is used... Uh, elsewhere, elsewhere in the Gospels, there's that moment um, when the nets are so full because of the miracle of the fish that, um, that they're about to rip or to tear or to schizo. And there's that moment at the foot of the cross um, where the soldiers are gambling and, uh, and they choose not to schizo Jesus' robe because it was all in one piece. 
But there is, there is one uh, specific particular moment where both Luke and Mark use the words torn or schizo. And as far as I know, it just happens once. And that moment that both Mark and Luke use the word schizo is that moment when um, the temple curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple and the rest of the world is schizoed in two, is ripped in two from the top right down to the bottom. And it's, it's in this moment that, that this uh, union or the potential union um, can happen between a holy God and sinful humanity because of the skeezering of the curtain. And so as we look at this scene of the heavens being violently torn open, we are encouraged to look ahead to that moment on the cross where Jesus says it's finished, he dies, and that, uh, and that fabric of reality is torn. Again, Jesus is at the center, but this time he's being crucified, he's not being baptized. Now, let's circle back round to verse 10 of uh, Luke chapter 3. Oh, sorry, verse 21 of Luke chapter 3 again. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. As he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Once again, engage your imagination. The fabric between our dimension and God's dimension, between our reality and God's reality, is being ripped apart like a piece of fabric. It's like someone up in the attic has stepped in the wrong place and their foot has come through, uh, you know, the ceiling. And now there's a hole and, and, and out of that hole, um, from that space upstairs, we see a dove flying down, flapping around. And, and the dove that came from this rip was the same sort of dove that Noah sent out. It was a dove that meant hope. It was a dove that meant um, a ceasing of the war. It, it was a dove that, that meant peace between uh, God and humankind. Out of violence, that violent rip comes peace, comes a dove. Now, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 2, John the Baptist gives his eyewitness statement. He, he says this, referring back to this moment in uh, Luke chapter 3. He says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, which is interesting because he's the cousin of Jesus. But the one who sent me, me to baptize with water, which is God the Father, he told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is God's Messiah. This is the Christ. John knew who the Father was because he'd received the message from him. He'd received that vocational call from the Father. But the Messiah was still unrevealed up until that moment when, in that river where the Spirit descended on him in the form of a bird. Isn't it interesting that even, jo uh, even Jesus' cousin didn't know that he was the Messiah until God revealed it to him? And that moment that John realized was when out of this violent tear in the fabric of reality descended peace. And not a vague John Lennon sort of a peace, but a peace incarnate, peace embodied, 
peace as a dove. And this time, the Holy Spirit, uh, in the emblem, in the symbol of peace, chooses not just to hover over the water like he did in Genesis one, but this time he lands on the he 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 lands like in Genesis eight when the dove found land and he did not return and that and that safe space that that um, that uh, safe ground that safe land uh, w- which we can all trust in and which the Holy Spirit landed on was Jesus Christ in Luke three. Let's um, look at it a different way. You see, it's out of the violence of the cross that we have Pentecost, right? Jesus dies, the curtain is torn, humanity and God can now be reconciled. But that's not the end of the story because it's through the tearing of the temple that the fire of Pentecost comes. And it's at Pentecost in Acts chapter chapter 2 that that the church is born from the womb of God. The tear and the pain and the rip of the cross gives birth to the life of Acts chapter 2 and the midwife is the Holy Spirit. And it's in that room in Acts chapter 2 where the church is tooled uh, to be a force and a movement of change throughout the world and throughout the centuries. But it's also in Acts chapter 2 that heralds the start of a time of intense persecution for the church. And all of this that happens in Acts chapter 2 is foreshadowed back in John in Luke chapter 3 in the Jordan River. You see Jesus gets baptized and the heavens tear open and the Holy Spirit rests on him. And then Jesus is sent out into the desert for one and a half months for 40 days to be tempted And friends, it's the Holy Spirit descending like a dove out of the tear in the heavens that gives Jesus success out there in the the wilderness. And it's the Spirit descending like fire that grants the early church success in the wilderness of hardship and of persecution. And it's the filling of the Spirit now that will give you the supernatural strength to endure what you are going through now. Come, Holy Spirit, we need you. Come, sweet Spirit, we pray. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your own special way. We need you, Lord. And so in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John the Baptist introduces Jesus with these words. He says, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John chapter 3, 16, which is a verse that many of us know. Uh, it's a famous verse and that John 3.16 is all about the cross. It's about salvation. God so loved. But Luke 3.16 is about Pentecost. It's about the Holy Spirit and fire. And friends, to survive in this life, we need to have both John 3.16, that salvation, that knowledge that God loves us. And we need to have Luke 3.16, um, that, uh, that setting apart and that retooling and that equipping through the Holy Spirit and through, through fire. Amen. Let's uh, circle back to our verses one more time. 
And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We've identified the son. We've identified the spirit. And now we're going to identify the father. You know, I'm sure that John's eyes are popping out of his head at this moment. And the people around him are probably like gibbering gibbering idiots they thought that they were coming for a baptism and instead it feels like the end of the world you know the sky is tearing a bird is flying down and now they're hearing a voice and it's the voice of God the father giving his approval uh, for his son in the presence of witnesses that's what they're hearing now is God's stamp of approval and when I hear these words in my uh, mind When I hear these words of God the Father, you are my son whom I love, I hear such a pathos. I hear such, um, I don't know, I hear such real emotion there uh, as, you know, the Father says these these words to his son. And, And I also hear these words echoing back through the centuries to that moment when God said to Abraham when he said take your son your only son whom you love Isaac and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you God knew what he was asking of Abraham your son your only son whom you love and in the Jordan through the language of the of the words that God said to Abraham God is now trying to say to the people there, I am now taking my son, my only son, whom I love, and I too will sacrifice him as an offering on the mountain. Only this time I'm actually going to go through with it and see it through to the end. The words of verse 22 is God saying to Jesus, Look, son, you've identified with the sinners you you've been baptized you and now you know what you have to do you know that you're heading into the desert both literal and metaphorical you know that your ministry starts now you know that there's no turning back you know that um there ahead of you is the cross you know that your body will be torn you know that you will have to go through not just the symbol of baptism but the thing which baptism represents your own death and your resurrection and and son i want you to know and i want everyone here to know that when you go through this it's not because i hate you jesus it's not because i'm angry with you no you are my son whom i love with you i am well pleased we're going to go through this because i love them all the all of those other people there in the Jordan River, I love them. And that's why, son, you and I are going to go through this. Now go and do the mission that you and the Spirit and I planned. And so Jesus, with the power of the Spirit resting on him, with the approval of God ringing in his ears, goes on his mission. This, friends, is the Trinity in action. But... There's another verse I hear when God says, this is my son. And that's Psalm 2, verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your your possession. 
And this verse, Psalm 2 verse 7, you know when it was fulfilled? It was fulfilled when the Spirit descended on that shaking, nervous little church uh, in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. This was the moment when the nations became God's inheritance through the birth of the church. And every soul that, that was saved on that day, those 3,000 souls who were saved, and every soul that has been saved since then is proof that Jesus is who God says he is. And boy, is he pleased with him. Is he pleased with him? Of course he is. Friends, what we've seen here this morning is that moment um, at the Jordan River, and this moment at the Jordan River is overflowing with symbols and with um, meaning and with references. You know, first John affirmed Jesus in his calling. He set him apart as Savior and Messiah by baptizing him. John said, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And then the Spirit affirmed Jesus. After John affirmed Jesus, then the Spirit affirmed Jesus by descending through violence and by resting on him in peace, foreshadowing Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And the Father affirmed Jesus by his clear words of love and approval. We've seen that Jesus, in his baptism, identifies with us as sinners Yes, Jesus was crucified for us. We know that. But first, he was baptized for us. And we've seen that also that Jesus in his baptism helps us to identify God as a trinity, as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And just like Jesus, we have a Father who, uh, who loves us and who claims us as his own. Now, I know that uh, God's words in Luke were meant for Jesus alone, you know. Uh, you know, this is my son whom I love. But I have a longing in my heart to hear words like this from my heavenly father. This is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. And thankfully, the Bible is full of instances of God claiming us as his children. He is one of them. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. Have you received Jesus? Have you believed in his name? Here's another one. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba Father once again. He is the trinity at work in your life. We have God who sent the spirit of his son. So you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And so just like Jesus, the father claims us. And the Spirit empowers us and sends us into the wilderness to serve and to suffer for him. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to hear these words of encouragement from the Father. And we, we need Jesus who is baptized for us. And so with the assurance of God's love and the Spirit's empowering and with Jesus coming alongside us, we can sing this song when peace like a river 
attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, when we go through our own Jordan River experience of dying to self, we can rise again and say, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And as Jesus points ahead to the cross through his, his baptism, we can say or sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And then as Jesus leaves the Jordan River and goes into the wilderness, we too, as we serve God in our own wilderness, we can sing, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul, that Christ saw you, he sees you, and he died for you. And if there's any message that we can take away from this baptism of Jesus, it is this, that when we're enveloped in the community of the Trinity and when we're loved by a saviour who, who identifies with us, we too can say, it is well, it is well with my soul.